Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're once again catching up with all those wonderful books that we've been reading. Before we get into all that literary stuff, however, what is going on? Well, you're speaking about books. There's a type of book, a tome on the way. Oh. Yes, if you want to get hold of your very own copy of the Blasphemous Tome, there is still time. We are sending out PDFs, certainly to everyone, and printed copies to high-level backers at the end of the month, or just after the end of the month. But if you are backing us by the end of June, you will secure your copy of the Blasphemous Tome. Yep, just head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash good friends of Jackson Elias. And once again, this will be packed full of goodies for Call of Cthulhu, including a brand new scenario by our very own Paul Fricker. And now on to our main topic, media catch-up, books. So once again, we are going back to the books that we've been reading recently and sharing some highlights with you as part of our regular series of discussing the media that we've been consuming and how it's been informing our gaming lives. So I believe you're kicking us off this time, Paul. At the end of last year, I began to look at my shelves. And just to warn you, this isn't actually what I'm going to talk about, but this is what <laughs> I'm going to talk about to start with. And I looked at my shelves and I've got a set of books on there that have been sat on there for many years that I've never read. And I thought, there's 12 volumes in the history of Middle Earth, as edited by Christopher Tolkien. And there's 12 months in 2022. That's synchronicity. What I'll do, I'll start one of those at the start of each month. When I finish it, I'll just do other things and read other stuff. But I'll start one at the beginning of each month. And that gives me a break between volumes and so on. And that's worked really well, actually. I find if I try and push myself to read, when I've sort of had a schedule of reading things and, and sort of planned that out in previous years, I've never kept up with it. And I've always kind of dropped off if I've tried to sort of have some sort of schedule rather than just casually reading. But starting one at the start of each month, that has worked a treat. And... Having been reading those whilst doing our series on DreamQuest, it was quite interesting comparison because Tolkien and Lovecraft were writing, this is pre-Lord of the Rings, so this is him writing in the sort of 20s and 30s. And one of the things that he writes, the book that I'm on at the moment in May's volume, is The Lost Road. And The Lost Road is uh, him and C.S. Lewis take up on a challenge between them one of them to write a science fiction piece and one of them to write a time travel piece. And Tolkien takes the time travel and Lewis takes the science fiction. And Tolkien comes up with this tale called The Lost Road. And it's a sort of fragmentary uh, tale. It's not, he didn't like complete it. But it's about a boy and his son, I think in the southwest of England. And they're in the modern day or his modern day in the 1930s or whatever it was at the time. And they travel back to Numenor, like in a part of Middle Earth. And they travel there, as far as I can tell, sort of through dreams. Hmm. And also in the history of Middle Earth, there's a reference to one guy who gets in a ship and sails off into the sky. Hmm. Again, which we see in Dream Quest. And then there's talking cats. There's Tevildo, who is Morgoth's servant, Lord of the Cats. Hmm. A lot of these things didn't make it into Lord of the Rings, but they're there in Tolkien's kind of earlier... Because all of, unlike Lovecraft, a lot of Tolkien's stuff then sort of fits very much into sort of Middle Earth, probably more so than Lovecraft's stuff does fit into the mythos, I would say. But it's just interesting seeing comparisons. They're not by no means bear up to any close scrutiny in terms of similarity, but... Just interesting that two people in two different continents, quite different people, well, you know, similarities again, but were touching upon some similar sort of themes. Mm. That's something I'd like to explore more. 
Before you get away from that, I'm just intrigued by the idea of plotting out your reading ahead of time. It's not something that's ever occurred to me to do. When I finish a book, I just pick up another book and that's that. It's never really occurred to me to think about what I'm going to read ahead of time. Is Do you think that's a common thing? Am I kind of missing a trick here? <laughs> I think probably I might be overstating it. I think what I've tried to do in the past is decide, okay, I'm going to read a book every, I don't know, every week or every two weeks or, or whatever, and sort of failed mm. at that. So probably more so than actually planning out a schedule. Whereas with this set of books that I know I've wanted to read for a long time and never kind of undertaken, mm. you know, you kind of look at it and think, well, if I'm going to read them, I should probably get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're not always an easy read because there's quite a lot of kind of fairly academic stuff in them. Some of it is literally written in Old English, <laughs> which is fine because I don't read those bits. <laughs> if you're not familiar with what Old English is, you can't read it. If you're not familiar with it, go back to our episode where you discussed Beowulf. Yeah. I was going to say, just call in Emily to give you a translation. Yeah. Yes, I did mention it to my daughter, Emily, and she was quite excited about those aspects. We're not talking Chaucer here. We're talking much older. Oh, boy. But I don't know. Again, it's never really occurred to me to challenge myself with the amount of stuff I read. It's just always like being a compulsion for me ever since I was a kid. I've just retreated into books and I'd never stop reading if I get a chance. No, I'm lazy when it comes to reading stuff. I don't sort of push myself. I sort of often don't end up reading very much. When I get an easy, what I feel is an easy book... I'm quite happy to read it, or book I'm really enjoying. But often the books that I seem to make myself want to read often, <laughs> often aren't that enjoyable to me. <laughs> There's a weird thing. My sister buys me books, and the books my sister buys me, I read, and I read them, and I think, wow, this is really easy and enjoyable reading. And then I get to kind of near the end, and I think, eh, you know, it was all right, but I didn't really get that much out of it. Mm. It was kind of like a popcorn movie. But the books that I often find more rewarding, not necessarily so, but often more rewarding, they're a bit, perhaps a bit more demanding to read. And I'm not a quick reader, so often it feels like hard work. Well, not perhaps hard work is overstating it, but if I don't push myself a bit, I find those books can drag on a long time. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the fact you can say, oh, I'll get through a book in a week. For my example, it took me 51 weeks to get through the bloody <laughs> I read anywhere, I guess, from about two to five books a week. Yeah, I mean, that's not an experience I've ever had. I can remember once in my life when I was ill at school and laid on the sofa and I read one of the Thomas Covenant books in a day. Mm. But that is pretty much a unique experience for me. I just don't give myself that much time to read. I read for like maybe 20 minutes and then I think well that's long enough and I put the book down mm. and and I think oh I need to go and do other things so it always seems like a a luxury just to sit and read whereas I'll put the tv on and watch for longer but yeah. somehow reading I don't know I, I there's a part of me that sort of thinks I should be doing something else I don't know why it's mad mm. I, I got a similar feeling but also because it yeah. just takes me so bloody long to read that that's also why it feels like a a long slog I think that's perhaps part of it. If you're a slow reader, you feel like you're not making very quick progress. I've done a bit. I'll put it down, come back to it later. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, it depends entirely on how complex the book I'm reading is. I mean, yeah, if it is something quite dense or abstruse, then yeah, I'll read it slowly and probably take a lot of breaks. But if it's something light, yeah, then I'll just chew through it. Well, the book I'm going to talk about, I was given... In 1991, it's got an inscription from my wife dated Christmas 91. So I would have read this probably after Christmas, early New Year in 1992, so literally 30 years ago. And when I picked the book up and looked at it, I got it brand new. But when I picked the book up and look at it, you know when you used to ferret around those old secondhand bookstores and, you know, <laughs> just still do when we come across one, and you find those grotty old paperbacks where you open it and all the, like, the... The first sort of centimetre or two of the outside of the page is all yellowed and mottled. Yeah. And it looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how old am I? I'm seeing uh, this new. Paul, Paul, the same thing is happening to our bodies. 
No, I swear that it's just the quality of the cheap paper. <laughs> so acid-free paper, which it isn't, I'm guessing, is probably a good thing because it will stand the test of time. So all you young'uns, invest in decent books. <laughs> we can get whatever the fuck we want, it won't matter. Anyway, so the book I have is a collection of five linked tales published over eight years in Weird Tales. Yes, it's August <laughs> Durless' Trail of Cthulhu. Oh, oh boy. boy. Yes. <laughs> so I remembered reading this back in 91. So I'd only come across Lovecraft probably four years before. So sort of 86, 87 time when I sort of started playing Call of Cthulhu and reading Lovecraft at very much the same time. So this would have probably been my first encounter with Durleth. I think I'd also got The Mask of Cthulhu, the other book, um, mm. but I couldn't see that one on the shelf. So I picked this one out. And I just kind of wanted to see what it was like. So I've got vague memories of the story and of reading it. And obviously I've picked up things from other places about Durleth and about the elements that are in the book. I mean, one thing to say is a collection of five linked tales. And if you've read Herbert West Reanimator from Lovecraft, you'll know that that's episodic in much the same way. So mm. they're published, you know, like a couple of years apart. So in each piece, you have to kind of reestablish the story for the reader because it might be the first piece of that story that a reader has read. It has to stand alone. Thinking about that afterwards, there's quite a lot of reiteration and repetition in the book. But that's why, because hmm. you know, each story has got to kind of re-establish what the mythos is and, and who the characters are and all that sort of stuff. So that does influence the book, I think. So we get five tales. And interestingly, the device is such that each tale has a different character. It's sort of like a different player character, if you like. It's like playing five linked scenarios, each one with different player characters. But it introduces the character, the kind of overarching character of Laban Shrewsbury, anthropologist and professor of philosophy at the Miskatonic University, who, of course, lives in Arkham, Massachusetts. He's the author of a couple of mythos tomes you might know from the game, Myth Patterns of the Latter-day Primitives, with a special reference to the Rillier text, and Cthulhu in the Necronomicon. That first title just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Well, you know, these academics. <laughs> so he wrote that first one in 1915, and then he disappeared for 20 years. 20 years. And then he reappeared. A bit like the dude in Shadow Out of Time, I guess. And this is when we meet him. And why do we meet him? Because the main character, Andrew Felon, at least that's how I figure you pronounce his name, Felon, he sees an ad, I guess, in the newspaper for... <laughs> And who wouldn't answer an advert like this? It is a bit longer than this, but the first line reads, Wanted, young man of brawn, brain, and limited imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you've got to be strong enough to do stuff, clever enough to do the work, the sort of secretarial work and stuff that he wants you to do, but to have limited imagination so you don't correlate all the contents of the mythos yourself <laughs> and, you know, immediately go mad. There's a, a twist worthy of Lovecraft. You know those twists that we see from Lovecraft and you see them coming a mile off? Shrewsbury doesn't have... Well, he wears glasses. And it's pointed out they're dark glasses. You can't see his eyes. And they're the kind of glasses that come around the side of your head as well with the sort of bits around the, the, the screens around the side of the glasses. And towards the end of the book, yes, we get it in... Italic letters. Oh my God, his eye sockets were empty. Ooh. Hollows in his head, as if this is some kind of massive shock. <laughs> but thinking back, yeah, Lovecraft would have probably done that. <sighs> it's not so far from some of the surprises we get from Lovecraft, to be fair. We get quite a few things that we see in the game, which takes elements from you know, many mythos writers, not just Lovecraft. So we get... Now, it's not called Space Mead here. It's called the Golden Mead of the Elder Gods. And you don't have to chug down a pint of it. Like, just a drop of it he has, and it has the effect. The effect is it separates your body from your astral body. And then there's words that you chant, and 
there's a whistle you blow. So it's almost like verbal, somatic and material components. <laughs> and that summons a biaki that carries you away. I think it carries your body away or maybe your astral body. I'm not sure which. Um, <laughs> but your, your real body is like your physical body is separated from you. And that goes into like cold storage because it's now immune to the effects of time and space. Your other body, your astral body, yeah, it can go off to Solano to study in that distant library on another planet, or it can go off with your good buddy uh, Shrewsbury and, and blow up gates <laughs> through which Cthulhu might emerge. He's sneaky like that. He is. You've got to <laughs> blow him up. If this isn't Pulp Cthulhu, I don't know what is. Because hmm. we fly through space in this like five-chapter campaign, blowing up gates through which Cthulhu might return. And it finishes dropping a freaking nuclear bomb on Rillier. When was the last one written? Must be enough to 1945 then. Yeah, I didn't mention the date. So the first one is the house on Kerwin Street is March 44. The last one, the Black Island, is January 52 eight years later. Right. So they kind of bridge that period. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's very kind of Pulp Cthulhu. It feels very much on the level of a fun Pulp Cthulhu game, I think. Durlitz's writing, I would say, is proficient. I didn't read it and think, this is terrible. The writing doesn't stand out as having any positive literary style. You know, like you get some writers that certainly we see in Lovecraft. or, But it, it works for what it is. I, I'd say it's kind of almost like a kind of uh, comic book quality. It's quite fast paced. It sort of takes you through the various sort of story elements and does what it needs to do. Yeah, I guess when we've talked about Durlith on the podcast before, we focused very much on some of his early stories that have used elements that have, have gone into the mythos, like the Ithaqua stories, where he was, in some cases, a teenager when he wrote them. And as a result, the writing of them is generally pretty terrible. Right. I mean, it, it certainly feels like he's kind of learned his craft here. Hmm. It delivers the, the stories pretty proficiently. So that's what I've been reading. So I'd say, yeah, overall, when it comes to the book, if you're a fan of the mythos, it's a fun read. And if you're looking for inspiration for Pulp Cthulhu, then grab yourself a bottle of mead and start reading. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that, oh gosh, back in the mid-80s. I've read that in The Mask of Cthulhu around the same time. I picked up mm. a pair of volumes that were published around the same time, reprinting them. And... They made absolutely no impression on me. I literally cannot remember anything about them. There's a lot of the stuff that I read around that time which was pretty forgettable anyway, but it's like my brain has completely ejected every trace of those books. I mean, like the second part, it's very much a return to Innsmouth. Mm. Felon gives the, the character in that part, Abel Keane, a three-hour makeover to look like a deep one. <laughs> I mean, it's just like what you would do in a game. And it, it totally works. You know, he uses disguise skill, I guess. Are you sure this isn't Carry On Cthulhu? <laughs> it's not as comedic as that, but I'm making it sound perhaps lighter than it is. But a lot of times I kind of thought, as a reader as in a story, it sounds a little far-fetched, I guess, is a, is a fair word to use. But then I think, well, that's how pop games are. They are kind of far-fetched and what we do in them those stories are pretty kind of like that really yeah i must admit my complaints about Durdith generally have not extended to the silliness or well no silliness is the wrong word but you know the lack of seriousness it's been i guess very much with those early stories that they were very badly written but also the fact that they were just derivative. Uh, they basically felt like fanfic. They were just rehashing elements of Lovecraft and not really, I was about to say, not really adding anything to them. But yeah, I mean, they did add stuff to them, but the stuff they added I found utterly repellent. Well, I think that's it. I mean, different people take the mythos and do different things yeah. with it. He was taking it and doing stuff with it quite early on. And you might like it, you might not like it, but he's taking it and doing stuff with it. Mm. I think because he's one of the early people to do that, it's easy to sort of criticise him. If somebody were doing that now, it'd just be another person doing it. I mean, same as we're doing it when we 
take it. I mean, we're doing games, it's a bit different, but yeah, we're putting our own slant on the mythos. I don't know. I'd say that a lot of the mythos fiction that's published these days is significantly better than many of the early works because, I mean, for a start, they're written in a more mature style, I think, generally. I mean, you know, yeah. obviously there are exceptions, but I think because at this stage the mythos is you know, 100 years old or getting on for 100 years old, that there's been a lot of time to reinvent elements and to look at them through different cultural lenses and different fictional influences. And what we see today in mythos fiction is, I'd say, very, very different from Lovecraft in most respects. You, you can still see the roots in there, but there aren't many mythos writers these days. I mean, obviously, some amateurs, but there aren't many professional mythos writers these days who just rehash Lovecraft. No. And today, you know, would that get published? I don't know. Probably get self-published. Hmm. But back then, it was kind of, well, like we said, there weren't that many people doing it. And yeah, I'd agree. It doesn't necessarily compare particularly favourably to what a lot of modern writers are perhaps doing with the mythos. Yeah. But it, I think, you know, as a piece of history and mm. as its own thing, that's going to appeal to some readers, I think, if you like that style of story. Okay, so that's uh, August Derleth's The Trail of Cthulhu. How about you then, Matt? I'm going to swing the complete other way then from pulp action adventure to... Oh, gritty realism. Yeah, pretty much. All right. <laughs> but gritty realism tinged with some pretty horrible, kind of nasty, human-inflicted horror. So gritty realism then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gritty realism through an 80s lens. Fucking hell, it's just getting worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> when you were saying about trying to pick books that you want to read or... Uh, setting yourselves targets this book took me 51 weeks to get through <laughs> but that's because again a similar kind of thing for me that i find being a slow reader that i have to try and get moments when i can but then i require hours upon hours to make even the smallest dent into a book so it's those times when i have that kind of free time spare are fairly few and far between so i have to pick and choose what i want to read quite a fair way in advance and also in your defense you did spend a couple of those weeks in a coma yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> but I was glad I finally got to finish this, though, because I started it long before I went into the hospital, but then it's been problems with the hand trying to hold things, and yeah, it's mm. actually being able to open the book was a uh, nice little milestone for me. The roots why I chose this one go back to, again, thinking of what I want to read as like the next book that we talk about on the show. So trying to think about an author that I hadn't read anything from previously that I've got books for that I wanted to read for a while. Looking at the recommended reading list for the Horror Writers Association, there was a book title on there which I knew I had, which is Ghoul by Michael Slade. I thought, okay, this is a book I've had on my shelf for a long time and I'd love to read, but I know that it's not the first book in the series that this guy's written or rather when i say this guy michael slade is actually a pseudonym for different writers there's um three of them that started off writing at the beginning of the series and it's got like good rock bands they've had people come in people come out and so the numbers have gone up and down but the first book in this series called special x it became known as even though that it never gets mentioned by that in the first book it's the one i'll be talking about called headhunter this came out in 1984, so it's very much a product of its time. And I suppose the hard thing for me is I don't want to spoil it in case anyone wants to go out and read this, because this was a bloody good book. <laughs> mm. And it has one of those moments where, I kid you not, the reaction from me when I got to the almost the very last line, if you exclude the epilogue, which is very much wrapping up a very small part of the book that isn't explained fully at the outset... The very last line is where you actually find out who the hell the killer is in this book. It's kind of a reveal that made me think, what the hell, have I read something wrong here? How can it be this person? <laughs> Maybe steer clear of a spoiler on that then, but yeah. can you give us a, like a, an idea of what the 
book, when the book's set and like what it's about. Again, it's kind of difficult without going into spoiler territory, but it starts off with a fairly lengthy prologue, I guess, that you could divide into three parts. Well, the first part set in the 19th century regarding a Canadian Mountie. The book primarily is set in Vancouver during the 80s, but it jumps between a few different places. Starts off in the 19th century up in the British Columbia mountains of a Mountie that's basically doing a manhunt, but he's doing it solo. And then the next bit is where you start to get a hint of some of the more graphic material in the book. <laughs> set in a sex dungeon in New Orleans uh, during the 50s. Okay. And it's pretty graphic in what it describes. Hmm. Huh. And then you move on to the last part, which I think is set in the 60s off the top of my head. It's not too far after that. Probably 60s or 70s, regarding a plane crash that happens in South America. And the survivor mm. meets up with a worker that's doing some stuff for the Peace Corps. And bad shit happens to her. And you start off by thinking, what the hell is the connection between these three different stories? Hmm. And you don't have that all wrapped up until pretty much the end of the book. Oh, right. So presumably different characters in each part as well. Right? Yes. Yeah. No overlap. Right. Well, you think there's no overlap, but you're not given the whole story, which is why you don't piece it all oh, together until the end. So when you do get to the end and you learn like the revelation, you kind of think back on those three parts and reassess. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, but there's the device hidden within that as well, which I had to go back and reread to think, as I said, when you get that last line where it reveals who the killer is, you then think, hang on a minute, this doesn't make sense. I had to go back and reread various parts to go, oh, hmm. yeah, that's how they did it. Neat. And it's such a simple way that it's hidden from the reader as well that it really makes you kind of kick yourself going, why the hell didn't I see this coming? <laughs> nice. But you cut forward to the 1980s, the inverted commas, modern day for the book. And in Vancouver, there's a series of bodies which start turning up without heads. There's a kind of echoes of some Thomas Harris in here with quite graphic set pieces of how the bodies are found. Hmm. A bit like in Science of the Lambs, where you've got the body strung up inside the cell and so on after Lecter gets free. Probably the most memorable one in here is that a body is put up against a totem pole. And the, the top of the totem pole is positioned in such a way that it kind of replaces the head, but the head is otherwise missing. The press, being the press, start nicknaming this killer the headhunter. Because someone is going around Vancouver and they are hunting heads. Hmm. It makes sense. Yeah, so it kind of does what it says on the tin. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are very much like the heroes of this story. They're the ones that are ultimately... The narrative focuses on them trying to catch the killer. So it does become a bit of a procedural, but it doesn't go gratuitously into detail. There's a few bits where it discusses psychological profiling, some bits of kind of versioning forensics, but it's not too overly detail heavy. The main thing that it goes into is not the psychology, but the characterization of some of the key players on this team that's brought together. The police have a team that's set up specifically to try and catch this killer. Hmm. And there's various pressures that are put on them throughout the book. Things like uh, public pressure, public panic, as suddenly you realise, holy shit, there's a serial killer on the loose and this thing doesn't really happen in Canada all that much. So the public reaction to it becomes quite exponential in its kind of craziness as to how they're reacting as a group. And then you've got the political pressure that comes from the government to say, this is an embarrassment. You need to like replace the guy in charge. You need to take control of this from a higher government level and bits and pieces like that. So there's external pressure that the GM, if you think of it in a gaming role, is piling on the players all the way through this. But you've got uh, a couple of key players. You've got a Russian kind of ex-chess player psychoanalyst who works with the Canadians now after defecting. You've mm. got a couple of cops a very sexist, very brutish character, kind of misogynist guy called Scarlet. There's uh, Catherine Spann, who's the very tomboy, up-and-coming, wannabe careerist. You've got Robert de Klerk, who's probably the most stereotypical of the bunch. He's the guy that's in retirement that's brought back for one last job <laughs> to try and get this guy. His wife as well, uh, Genevieve. 
And you've got these other characters which are kind of dotted throughout, and it's how the parts they play in trying to bring this killer down. And all the, like, the cases they were working on previously that they've had to put aside so they can focus solely on this. And then you get about 100 pages from the end, and you think, oh, they get him. There's a confrontation that happens, and someone is found with a severed head in their possession, and there's a shootout, the guy dies. You think, okay, well, that's 100 pages from the end. What the hell was <laughs> going to happen in the last 100-odd oh. pages? And then the writing style shifts from being quite a normal third person to first person. Oh, and this, again, it's the author really plays around with the perception of the reader a lot and mm. really tricks you in how this thing works. My initial thoughts were, hang on, this is from multiple people's perspectives, but he's not telling me who these people are. And then, no, hang on a minute, I recognise this scene because this has been described earlier. This is one person, but is it the killer I'm reading about? Is it their perspective that it's actually that the real guy hasn't been caught? Even up until the last bit of that, chapter that section you're wondering what the hell is going on and it swaps back to a third person after that and then wraps up the actual plot huh. with that kind of kick in the teeth that no actually this is the person that did it and i'm not going to tell you who he is until the very 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 last line mm, yeah. that does sound pretty cool so how big a book is this matt you alluded to it being a big book it's 477 pages in hardback which for me is quite a big book to get through yeah, yeah it's yeah. fairly sizable yeah and also, I'm intrigued, well, not only by the fact that fictionally there seems to be several people writing the book, but factually there seem <laughs> to be several authors writing, like some kind of Borg collective called <laughs> Michael Slade. Is this correct? Yeah, yeah. The, the original three writers that were part of the Slade team were three Vancouver lawyers, Jay Clark, John Banks, and Richard Koval. That did change later to being Jay Clark and his daughter. So those two wrote as a team for the latter books in the series. Is this a common thing? I've not really heard of this before. I'm sure they're not unique in this, but I've not yeah. really come across this multiple people working as one name. It's happened a few times. Like The Expanse is a classic example of that, that that's two writers that work under one pen name. Oh, right. While I wholeheartedly recommend Headhunter, I think it's an amazing book, and hopefully you get the same kind of jaw-drop reaction that I had, because it really is such a surprise, even right up until the very end. And even then the um, epilogue, where it basically is no spoiler at this point, is two garbage collectors that go through basically the refuse of the city. They happen to find something that was dumped a few pages back, and it reveals something that the author only kind of alludes as to. There's something, this black item that's also with everything that was in this bag, that it finally describes what that is. That, again, makes you go right the way back to the beginning <laughs> of the book, thinking, oh, so that's where that chapter fits in and what this oh. is all about. It sounds like one of those films with a twist at the end that you want to then go and watch again so you can, like... Let's see whether you spot all the clues, yeah. Yeah, I, I had to go back and read several sections just to make sure, hang on a minute, but I'm sure this was yeah. this, but it turns out to be something completely different. Oh, it sounds pretty intriguing, yeah. I would say, though, that uh, beware that this is, as mentioned, written in the 80s, and there are some sections which are a little tough to read under the gaze of a modern eye. There right. has been a revised version of this that's been put out in the last few years by Cemetery Dance, Headhunter Reimagined. But the original, the one that I read, there's some not exactly favourable opinions given to cross-dressers or uh, transgender characters in this book. Okay, It can be a little tough in parts, I will warn you. But if you can get through that, then I wholeheartedly recommend it. But it does sound like this was perhaps quite an influential book because you mentioned Thomas Harris earlier, and you know, I know Red Dragon came out around this time, mm -hmm. but in terms of the kinds of dark thrillers that dominated, particularly the 1990s, this seems to, from what you've said, very much set the template there. Yeah, I mean, it's different from what I can tell with the other books that followed it. Again, one of the reasons I looked at Ghoul and did a bit more of a deep dive on that was that it does have elements of the Cthulhu mythos in it. Really? A lot of it's set in Rhode Island and has a background in Lovecraft himself. Oh, wow. Okay. Bizarrely, Lovecraft and a lot of Alice Cooper, apparently. <laughs> Alice Cooper comes from Detroit, doesn't he? 
bits of it are in London as well, so I don't think it's they worry too much about geography, but okay. it's just that thematically there's whole things that are thrown together with this kind of veneer of the supernatural over the top of it, but there's no supernatural connotation at all in the first book in Headhunter. It's say some dark stuff about what you do with seven heads. There is voodoo in there as well, because as I say, a whole chunk of it's down in New Orleans. Again, that's a really graphic section for that as well, but... But no, on the whole, I think the later books kind of take it in a bit of a different direction. But this one is very much a kind of straight down the line thriller, but with some very twisted people. I'm looking at Amazon now and there's a Michael Slade headhunter for Kindle and it's got reimagined in the title. That's the one that was done by originally by Cemetery Dance a few years back. It's a basically a revised version. I think from bits I read up on it, not many people have read both versions and done a review on it. But those that had looked at bits and pieces were saying basically it added a bit more of the procedural elements of it and a bit more of the detail on that front, which, to be honest, I'm kind of glad there isn't as much of that in the version I read because it was fairly heavy as it was. I didn't want to put any more detail in there. Yeah. But no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And eventually I'll get round to reading Ghoul next. Okay, and last up, Scott, what have you got for us? A few years back, when we went to Necronomicon 2019, I went and saw one of the panels there, which was on nihilism, because of course I would. And one of the authors on the panel was Nicole Cushing, who I'd heard of in passing, but I'd never actually read any of her stuff at that stage. And I was intrigued enough by the things that she had to say at the time that I thought, yeah, okay, I've got to seek out some of her work. I'm very glad that I did, though, you know, as I'll mention in a few moments, it took me a little while to, to get around to the good stuff. But if I would try to define her work or try to explain what it is, I'd struggle a bit. She's, I guess, definitely a horror writer, but more on the weird fiction side than pure horror. Again, it's difficult to pin down because some of her work is very definitely horror, particularly her earlier stuff. But what she's been writing recently is a lot less easy to define. And she's talked very much about her influences, particularly again on her early work, and the main influence being Thomas Ligotti. But certainly, I mean, she talked about as well the fact that she was drawn to the transgression of Richard Lehman and some of the extremity of, of Jack Ketchum. When I read her early stuff, I, what I really see in there as well is a lot of Clive Barker, because it, she sort of mixes up this philosophical cosmic nihilism of Ligotti, but brings in a lot more visceral, nasty, violent, transgressive sexual elements like you'd expect to find in, for example, Barker. And the end result is really quite deeply uncomfortable at times, in a good way. The first book of hers I read was the 2016 novella The Sadist's Bible, which definitely brings all those elements together. It is a nasty, nasty book that breaks pretty much every taboo you can think of. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It didn't knock my socks off, but it made me think that I wanted to check out more of her stuff. I'd heard that her first novel, Mr. Suicide, had won the Bram Stoker Award, or a Bram Stoker Award in 2016, the award for best first novel, I think. So I picked that up. I started reading it about a month back. Initially, that was the book that I was going to talk about. At the same time, I was also dipping into her short story collection, The Mirrors, which did a number on me. I found the overall effect, it's a bit like reading Logotti for me, in that I can't read too many of her stories in a row because it starts to have a corrosive effect on me. I need to break it up with other things. There was one story in that collection in particular called The Hanging Orchard, which is a 
stories set in this orchard in hell where there are these trees that instead of apples grow fetuses and the fetuses develop over time into people these damned souls but the umbilical cords then turn into these nooses around their necks and they spend eternity just hanging suffocating eternally and it's told from the point of view of someone whose job it is to maintain these bodies and it's it is a deeply fucked up story but yeah, like I say, I was originally going to discuss Mr. Suicide here because I thought that it has a lot of elements that particularly could influence unknown armies in that you know, a lot of it is about this strange cult of abnegation that's rooted in nihilism and uses strange extreme pornography to try to affect psychological changes. And There's a lot to recommend about that book. But then I remembered that I picked up a bundle a little while back, uh, a charity bundle, and there was one of her books that was included in there. And I started reading that after Mr. Suicide, and it's a book called A Sick Grey Laugh. As I was reading that, I realised that this was the book I wanted to talk about. The blurb of the book describes it wonderfully as a novel about madness, depression, history, utopian cults, literature, sports, and all the ways we struggle to stay sane in an insane world. Cushing herself in a video essay she did a while back described a sick grey laugh as about the experience of a person with mental health issues in a world with mental health issues. The protagonist at one point actually says, you know, perhaps it all boils down to one question. Am I sick or is the world outside my window sick? And that really is the thesis of the book, that it's structured in such a strange way and told in such a strange way. It's presented as this sort of autobiographical, non-fiction, investigative book written by a woman called Nicole Cashman, who is a writer of transgressive fiction who happens to live in the same little town somewhere on the border between Indiana and Kentucky that Nicole Cushing herself lives in, and like Cushing has been treated for deep depression and OCD and is sort of coming out of all this and rebuilding her life. but. The author, now that she's well again, or in a, a state of mind where she thinks she can write something meaningful, has decided to write what she refers to as a book of epidemiology, because what she's decided is that the world is sick. The first thing I see when I look outside my office window is, well, how do I even begin to tell you this? It's an overwhelming greyness that's slathered over everything, like a thick coat of snot. And this greyness, she believes, is a disease, is a sort of metaphysical disease that's infecting the world. Sounds like British weather most of the year. <laughs> it's a bit more of a deeper malaise than just the weather. And she decides that this grey sickness is something that is at its worst in the American Midwest where she lives, and that the epicentre of it is this small town of Numpton, not far from where she lives. And so the way the book is structured is you've got this first section where you've got all this autobiographical detail and talking about her getting into writing the book and what she's deciding and she wants to talk about. And then you have the second section, which is the history of this town of Nampton, written as a non-fiction narrative. Except, of course, Nampton doesn't exist. But she draws a lot from the real history of the American Midwest and a lot of the weirdness that went into that. We learn from this history that the town was founded by a religious sect that had travelled over from, from England. The sect was known as the New Israelites, but became known as the Cult of the Veil. And they had some weird beliefs, or at least you know, this fictional cult. Initially, that they were very much devoted to the fusion of capitalism and Christianity, making churches out of factories or vice versa. But one of the 
more interesting beliefs is that they believe that the will of God and the will of man presented a zero-sum game, and that as long as man had free will, then the second coming couldn't come about because we were taking too much free will away from God. And so the only way to bring about salvation is to erase human identity. So basically they all sacrifice their names and wear these veils the whole time, these black silk veils. And this is supposed to bring about the end times. And of course, the whole thing fails. Spoiler. <laughs> but then another cult comes about and takes their place. These are the Brides of the Holy Ghost, which is a, another religious sect rooted this time in female supremacy, who then, obviously, because of the sexism of the world around them, find themselves at odds with the male population. And again, you know, it all comes crashing down when men in power take financial advantage of the Spanish flu and destroy them, or at least absorb them. But the point of these two cults is that Cashman, the fictional character, is going back to these, looking at these as a time before this grayness set in, before the colour went out of the world of the American Midwest, back when it was still weird. She decides in the third part of the book that what she wants to do is find a cure for this disease. And the obvious way of doing this is creating her own cult, bringing back some of these strange beliefs. But then it gets warped by the encounter she has with people around her, drawing upon everything from alchemy to weird pornography, extreme pornography, to long-distance running. And it brings in some really kind of weird, funny social satire elements. And this whole section goes into wild digressions and really unexpected directions and does not resolve anything like you think you might. But it ends up being deeply satisfying. There's one bit in that last section which I think really stood out to me, both from a kind of Lagotian and Lovecraftian point of view, where she says, uh, I have a recurring nightmare that reality is being devoured by a giant interdimensional space monster, and the weirdness of the past few years is the result of that beast's digestive juices gradually breaking it down into indistinguishable globs. Which, yeah, I can quite identify with. From everything that I've said there, I mean, one thing that might not stand out is the fact that this is a very funny novel. I mean, it's dark, it's fucked up, it goes to some incredibly uncomfortable places at times, but I was surprised at how much I found myself laughing out loud while reading this. Cushing has a gift for finding the absurd in the nihilistic and making it genuinely funny. But as far as what might inspire gaming, there's obviously lots of little bits and pieces, particularly in some of the social satire and the fake history in there, that you could draw upon, particularly the weird cults, and lift some of those almost wholesale for Call of Cthulhu. But one thing that I was quite taken with is Cushing describes this novel as a polyphonic novel, which is a term that she's borrowed from the Czech writer Milan Kundera, best known for the unbearable lightness of being. It refers to a book that takes a range of narrative devices, presents itself as a lot of different things, and you know this very much does. You've got that first section that is very autobiographical, then you've got the second section, which is the pseudo-history, and then finally it turns into something that's, I guess, a bit more like traditional fiction, just one with an unreliable narrator. But even then, I mean, it's got all these strange asides where... Cashman will break down plans as bullet points and sort of explain things almost like um, a presentation. That got me thinking an awful lot about how we might present different aspects of a game or a campaign. And I guess we've already got some of that with, say, handouts. 
presenting those sort of pseudo-historical narratives that if you're given a handout that presents the history of a cult, you're sort of reading that or encountering that as a kind of historical research. But I just wonder whether there's kind of more in terms of presenting, I don't know, even some parts. For example, quite often if you've got characters who are investigating stuff, you might present just quick summaries of the things they learn and kind of break down information like that. You don't have to role-play through the narrative directly. But beyond that, you could make that a bit more deliberate. But as to why you might want to do that, I mean, that sort of plays into, I think, another important aspect of not just this book, but a number of Cushing's other books, which is her very conscious use of the distancing effect, which really set off bells in my head when I was thinking about gaming. I don't know if you've encountered the concept of the distancing effect. Yes, Gary, we've heard about the distancing effect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, call back to the last episode if you haven't heard it. So the idea of the distancing effect is it's kind of a way of breaking the fourth wall in fiction. It's a way of the author reminding you that you are reading a work of fiction as a way of disengaging you emotionally from it or breaking immersion so that you engage with it more on an intellectual basis. The idea being that you then see the characters as characters, you see the situations as constructs and question them more, think about them more in that perspective. Bertolt Brecht, when he used it in theatre, very much saw that as a political act, as a way of making people question the world around them more. And this runs all the way through Cushing's work. Obviously, there's the fact that the author in A Sick Grey Life addresses the audience directly, addresses the reader directly, and spells out exactly what she's doing in terms of the structure. But this crops up, I say, even more vividly in some of her other books. Like she published a novella recently called The Half Freaks, where she, as Nicole Cushing, starts off by talking about this character she's been imagining who seems to be appearing in her life, wants to be written about, but she's trying to learn more about him and sort of starts telling us his life story and later on talks about printing out her first draft of the story so that she can annotate it and then coming back and finding the papers disturbed and smelling this guy's body odour and his cigar scent in the air because he's been going through reading her notes to see what she's been writing about him and stuff like that. And, so, and it did get me thinking an awful lot about immersion in role-playing games and how it's held up as this sort of ideal state that you want to be immersed in the the game and how little i think that actually happens because as i mentioned a few moments ago we've got these shifts of perspective where you have summations of things that characters have learned. You break out of the game the whole time when you're engaging with game mechanics. Sometimes in games, when I've been playing Cult with Craig from Red Moon Roleplaying, he's very keen on getting players to talk about what their characters are feeling at any stage and to step outside the game and describe your character's internal monologue. Even as we're playing, I don't know about you, but I find myself shifting between describing stuff in the first and the third person the whole time. And you get GMs who address players by their character names or player names or mix between them. Obviously, a lot of this happens organically, but it did get me thinking about the way that some games, for example, a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games do try to hammer home you address the character, not the player. Hmm. On the other hand, you have a lot of indie games that very much want you to look at the game from the outside. I did wonder whether role-playing like that does encourage 
that kind of questioning that the distancing effect is supposed to bring about, that by consciously seeing these narratives that you're involved with as games, particularly with a lot of indie games, stepping back and looking at them as narratives and shaping them, whether that does actually create these tools or create these perspectives that, say, Bertolt Brecht was trying to create 70 or 80 years ago. I must admit, where I've listened to actual plays where they have that kind of internal monologue going, where it's saying, oh, my character's feeling this, that's the point where me as a listener basically goes, fuck's sake, get on with the story. Stop <laughs> spouting this shit. I don't care what you're feeling like. I want to know what you're doing. It really is a massive turnoff for me. Yeah, it feels like it should be that sort of cliche of, like, show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. The character in the film doesn't tell us how she's feeling. She, mm. she shows us how she's feeling by the way she acts and what she says. Mm. Certainly, I've found as a player, I'm not thinking in terms of the listener in the actual plays, but as a player, that having that drawn out does force me to engage with the character in a different way and perhaps mm. give more thought to a character's motivations and perhaps sometimes stop seeing them as just a sort of player insert and encourages me to think of them more as their own, well, character. Yeah, which I'd say is a, a probably a different form of immersion, really, isn't it? But it's bizarrely a form of immersion that comes about by almost breaking the fourth wall, which is almost paradoxical. Yeah, but the whole thing of immersion in role-playing games is not... I don't think it's like immersion in films. It's not a digital thing, is it? It's not like you're immersed or you're not immersed. Whereas I think when you're watching a film, I think it kind of is more like that. You know, you're in the film or somebody rings, or somebody walks in and says something, and suddenly you're not immersed anymore. It's very much, in general, it, it feels, you know, I've only just thought about this now, but to me that feels more like a digital thing. Whereas in a game, there's a lot more levels to it, because I think we're rarely as immersed in a game as we are in a film. Hmm. Yes, obviously, because we are rolling dice, we are saying, you know, what's our character doing, and so we're talking about mechanics and things, so, but that, that's a whole level of sort of game continuity that we kind of get immersed in. But I certainly have encountered gamers who see total immersion in a game as this kind of holy grail, this platonic ideal state of gaming, where any metagaming, any out-of-character discussion, even sometimes engaging with game mechanics, is somehow a breach of what they want from the game that they want to feel the whole time like they are their characters i've heard you and one or two others talk about that from a forum years ago and my perception is that the number of people who take that attitude are very they're a very small percentage of role players and mm -hmm. they were represented by some very verbose people I've certainly played with people who've espoused those ideas as well, and I've found them very difficult to square with my own experiences of gaming. Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it just takes all sorts. I mean, whatever you pick, there's going to be some people who, who do it that way, but uh, it doesn't seem to be a particularly common thing to me in, in my experience. But yeah, anyway, to sum things up, uh, Sick Grey Life is, I think, one of the more challenging books I've read recently, not in terms of density or style or anything like that, but just in terms of some of the things that it made me feel and think about. And it's, I think, certainly one of the best books I've read for a while. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. I think Cushing's work in general is the very definition of not for everyone. Perhaps less with the sick grey lath than some of her early works. It's not going to rub your nose in some really unpleasant stuff as much as, say, The Sadist's Bible or even Mr. Suicide. But it is a very disconcerting, unsettling book that sets out, I think, to challenge a lot of perceptions of reality and make you feel deeply uncomfortable in the process. And, I mean, what more do you want? What else would we come to expect from a recommendation from such as yourself? This is uh, much <laughs> the, the archetypal book, from what I can tell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Marco Goebel. Thank you very much to Davosaurus. And I guess appropriately, after what I've just been talking about, I have a fictional character to thank here. So thank you very much to Ram the Shaman. So just to explain that and put that in context, there is a game that is going on at the moment on the Old Ways podcast run by our good friend Rena Henze. And Ram the Shaman is one of the characters in there. It's a Vampire the Masquerade game called Blood Moon Rising set in San Francisco. And I did have the pleasure of joining the game as a guest playing an NPC recently and making the characters' lives very difficult indeed. Ram the Shaman is played by Tegan, who has <laughs> created this wonderful character who everyone has decided is just simply the worst. But Ram's one saving grace, perhaps, is that he's a devotee of the good friends of Jackson Elias and recommends the podcast to everyone he can. So <laughs> We've smashed through the fourth wall and back into another fictional dimension. Absolutely. Well, I hope your character's going to start back in the show as well, Scott. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, and if you're enjoying the show, then please do let your friends know. We also have merchandise available, which you might enjoy. T-shirts and all those wonderful things that people like wearing nowadays. Unlike the days when people just used to walk around naked. Well, you know, they used to wear furs. <laughs> but we didn't have a logo on those. That was just poor planning on our part. It was. Well, that has been uh, our media catch-up. Let us know if you've read any of these tomes, or uh, if you want to know more about them and where to get them, then come and have a look on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blasphemoustomes.com. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com mm-hmm.